Good morning. As always, it is a pleasure to be back with you all again. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 40 with me. Follow along as I read the first 11 verses. Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem, and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Call out. Then he answered, What shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with His arm ruling for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. Like a shepherd, He will tend His flock. In His arm, He will gather the lambs and carry them in His bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Bow and pray with me, will you? Father, as we gather this morning, we, we are comforted in knowing that we have your shepherd-like care in our lives that you have provided for us through your Son. Father, we praise you that you have reached out to us in our helplessness and in our desperate and most needy time. Thank you, Father, for the comfort that you bring us. Thank you for the pleasure we have to worship you this morning. And as we study this passage, may you be glorified and may our, our souls be comforted and encouraged. It's in your name I pray. Well, at the point when Isaiah is writing these words, the kingdom of Israel had been split for a few hundred years. And not only had it been split, but it had been split north-south by the king's son and had only survived two solid kingships as a united kingdom. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, split the kingdom through his foolishness. And the ten tribes to the north rebelled holistically against the worship of Yahweh as the covenant God of Israel. And so for their disobedience, God wiped them off the map. 
At this point when Isaiah is writing, the Assyrians had come in and completely annihilated and taken captive all of the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes of Israel. There was nobody left. Nobody left to populate the northern kingdom. All that was left was Judah in the south. And the Assyrians had come up in might against Jerusalem at that point. And because of Hezekiah's faithfulness and crying out to the Lord for strength and for refuge, the Lord Himself went out to battle the Assyrians. It's in this context that Isaiah is writing these words. Israel has been taken out and the kingdom of Judah in the south is now alone as the people of God in the promised land. And not only that, but the previous 39 chapters, Isaiah has been prophesying strongly against the sin of both Israel and Judah and the nations all around. Everything leading up to this point has been death and judgment pronounced against the people of God for their disobedience. Everything. The kingdom had been split due to disobedience and a lack of faithfulness and obedience to God. The northern king had zero faithful kings. Zero kings who wanted to do right by the covenant of God. The southern kingdom had some good kings and some bad kings. And ultimately, each king just kept moving the bar forward for when judgment would finally come down on the southern kingdom. And so 39 chapters of Yahweh telling His people, repent or else. Judgment is coming for disobedience. Judgment comes on unfaithfulness. Repent. Because judgment will come. As I was growing up, I got disciplined quite a bit by my father. I was a very rowdy child, very disobedient, did things without thinking, spoke without thinking, did most things without thinking. Popped into my head and started doing it before I could figure out why. But I'll never forget the way my father disciplined me. He would sit me down and he would explain to me what I did and why it was wrong. Why it deserved punishment. And he would tell me, there's an important aspect of repentance, but that doesn't negate the consequence all the time. Not that at that age I ever really was repentant as evidenced by the fact that I continuously got spanked for the same things over and over and over and over again. But he would tell me why what I did, what I said, deserved punishment. And then he would lay out for me what that punishment was going to look like. Whether it was a spanking, or I would lose privileges, or I would be grounded in some fashion or another, or a combination of all of them. But following this, before dealing the punishment out, there was always, always the comfort of knowing my Father loved me. He never failed before dealing punishment to say, I do this in love. 
not because I want to do this, but because I love you, I discipline you. That is the hinge point in Isaiah that we have come to here at chapter 40. Following 39 chapters of promised and actual death, judgment, blood, wrath, and ruin, the Lord opens His mouth to speak here in chapter 40 first with a command to comfort His people. It's enough punishment. No more. My people have received enough. I'm ready to unveil how I will purify them and draw them back to Myself. And so here, He begins to reveal through Isaiah His plan to redeem His people through His servant, through His sacrifice on His people's behalf. Here in the first 11 verses of Isaiah 40, Isaiah presents four proclamations which reveal the glory of the Lord in His sovereign plan of redemption and rule over His people. Four proclamations which reveal the glory of the Lord and His sovereign plan of redemption and rule over His people. First, in verses 1 and 2, the proclamation of the Lord's comfort. Look again at at the opening words to this chapter. Some of the the most comforting words in Scripture. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. This is an intimate, it's a personal declaration from God. Isaiah is opening the second half of his book with an emphatic imperative from God to comfort his people. And he does this in, the first, in this first stanza, in these first two verses, with three different pronouncements for what that looks like. These are three different pronouncements which reveal the compassion of God to and for His people and His plan for their restoration. First of all, note, note that Isaiah is writing this all at a time when the hearts of the people are cold and hostile toward God. The people are not obedient at this point in time. Hezekiah in his reign was, was an, a, bl- a bright blip on the radar of coming destruction. The darkness in Israel at this time, there were still idolatrous people. The high places had not been torn down. Hezekiah had done what he could to reform Israel, but Israel as a whole, Judah as a whole at this time, was still cold and hostile and disobedient as the people of God. Isaiah is not writing for the people he is living with. He's writing for those who will be in exile. Those that the first 39 chapters have prophesied will be taken away, will be led away in captivity. He's describing the comfort for them, those in exile, as if their present situation already needed it. He's presenting the the comfort that they will need in exile as they are enslaved and dragged off. And the Lord is answering their questions about His faithfulness and their position in His plan for them. He's saying, comfort my people. Comfort them with these words. They will be dragged off. They will be killed. They will be punished. They will be disciplined. 
but there is yet comfort. I'm not through with them. The people of God would would be confused and disoriented about their condition because they were holistically blind about their condition. In their rebellion, they could not see that they were being disrebellious, disobedient to God. They thought they were being faithful to Yahweh as their covenant God. They weren't. And in exile, they would be thinking, why why would God let this happen to us? We're His chosen people. Why would He allow us to be taken captive? Send us away from our promised land? He said this is our land, and now we don't even possess a home. He's abandoned us. They would be confused and disoriented about their condition. And Isaiah is now the Lord's mouthpiece to deliver the next step in His unfolding plan of redemption for His people. And he begins here with a comforting proclamation that there is a way of redemption. One commentator puts it this way. This new section of Isaiah, particularly 40-48, through addresses the questions concerning God's ability and desire to deliver the exile that the exile would pose. Wouldn't the fact of the exile's existence prove that God had either forsaken His people or was not the Lord of history? Would it not mean that He had been unable to defend His people from the pagan nations or that He had been defeated by His people's pernicious sinfulness? Isaiah's answer to these questions is a resounding no. He shows that a new historical situation would not invalidate the truths he had proclaimed to Judah's kings. Indeed, the new situation would only make those truths clearer. The fact of the exile would give God an even greater opportunity to show his sovereignty and his trustworthiness. Thus, this introductory chapter makes two broader points. God is the sole ruler of the universe and He can be trusted. He can be trusted. And so he tells Isaiah, proclaim comfort to my people. But what does that comfort look like? Well, he uses three three pronouncements for that. Three different phrases. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. There can be no greater comfort than realizing sin has been removed from our lives. And it was the same for Jerusalem. It would be the same for the exile. Jerusalem's warfare will come to an end there in verse 2. There will come a day when all the strife, all the misery, all the death, the punishment, and the discipline which Jerusalem has faced at the hands of her enemies and as punishment for her sins, when that warfare will come to an end. And the idea here is not merely that her warfare will cease, but that the term limit set for her hardships and war will be completed and she will have peace. 
The Lord set a specific limit on the destruction and the purging and the discipline and the punishment of His people. And when that limit was reached, He would end it. And that's ultimately what would happen when the people would be brought back to the land. The second pronouncement is that Jerusalem's iniquity will be removed. There is no greater comfort than knowing that. The very reason that they had been shipped off into exile by the Babylonians would be removed. The sin that marred them in their covenant relationship with God would be removed. There would no longer be a barrier between them and God. And then the third one, Jerusalem will receive double for all her sins. The third pronouncement. She has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Is Isaiah saying that Jerusalem has or, or will receive a double punishment for her sins? And there's some interesting interpretive issues with this phrase just because how does that fit with the previous context of comfort? That in exile she will receive double punishment for her sins. How does it work if there's nothing man can do to add to salvation if she receives double for her sins? If it is through grace alone that forgiveness comes, what does Isaiah mean that Jerusalem has received double for all her sins? Well, many commentators have, have proposed solutions to this, and really it boils down to, to, to two options. Matthew Henry, great Puritan commentator, uh, he saw this as a double cure for sin in Christ. He states that Jerusalem has received of the Lord double for the cure of all her sins, more than sufficient to separate between her and her idols. True penitents have indeed in Christ and His sufferings received of the Lord's hand double for all their sins. For the satisfaction Christ made by His death was of such an infinite value that it was more than double to the demerits of sin, for God spared not His own Son. In other words, the double portion which Jerusalem receives from the Lord for her sins is a reference to the coming mission of grace of Yahweh's servant, thus foreshadowing the sacrificial substitution of the servant in chapter 53 of Isaiah. And that's just one option. John Calvin presents it this way. He presents it as an unwillingness on the part of God to exact more punishment on Jerusalem for her sins. He says, it is evident that the prophet means nothing else than that God is abundantly satisfied with the miseries which have befallen his church. The general meaning is that God is unwilling to inflict more severe or more lengthened punishment on his people because through his fatherly kindness he is in some sense displeased with the severity of the punishment. And in essence what he's saying is the mercy of God has constrained him. Well, how do we rectify the two? Which one is it? 
Why not both? Why not both? God is fully in His right to exact the full measure of punishment for sin, and He is fully within His right to show mercy upon whomever He wishes to show mercy. He is fully within His right to restrain wrath at whichever point He wishes. I believe what makes this statement so comforting in this context is where it falls in Israel's history. Isaiah is introducing a message of comfort after 39 chapters of judgment and punishment for sin. And in the following 27 chapters, he lays out God's plan for the restoration of his people and their eschatological hope in him. And so I think there's a sense in which God is saying, I have exacted enough punishment upon Jerusalem for her sins. This is enough. I will restrain myself and my wrath and I will pour the deserved remainder out on my own servant, the Messiah. The one whose sacrifice will provide for my people a comfort deeper and a grace more abundant than anything they could ever hope for, anything they could ever deserve. And thus, though Jerusalem is spared the full brunt of God's wrath, the justice of God is still satisfied. Even though the grand measure of grace received in the Messiah is given to Jerusalem, the need for the satisfaction of God's wrath will not be met and repentance is still needed. The hearts of the people must be prepared. The hearts must be prepared for the coming of the Lord and His servant. And therefore the the anonymous voice in verse 3 calls out for a preparation of the way of the Lord. The proclamation of the Lord's coming in verses 3 through 5. And in this proclamation of the Lord's coming, this anonymous voice calls for the preparation for the coming of the Lord Himself. This practice clearing the way for the Lord in the wilderness. There, there was a practice in ancient Near Eastern cultures when a monarch or a noble or, or someone of importance would, would be coming to a town, they would announce it ahead of time, and the town would send a crew out, would send people out to level the roadway for that monarch or that noble. This is picturing something similar to this. This anonymous messenger is declaring a a very specific command to prepare the way for the Lord's coming. And here we see a very clear implication for what the New Testament is revealing to us. There is a New Testament fulfillment here that can't be ignored. There's a connection here that no one can get away from. A voice is calling clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. This is the ministry of John the Baptist as the forerunner of the Messiah. And Isaiah is prophesying the very coming of God in flesh. And his forerunner. 
We recognize the connection here to John the Baptist's ministry as the forerunner of the Messiah in Matthew chapter 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, and John 1. John the Baptist is confirmed to be the New Testament fulfillment of this proclamation in all four of the Gospels. Now this is important, because remember, the Gospels, being four of them, not all of them say the same thing. They all have the same message. They all tell the life of Christ, but they all have different emphases. Three of them tell roughly the same events from the life of Christ. And then John wanted to be different, and so he did his own thing. But all four Gospels directly quote this passage as being a fulfillment of the forerunner of the servant of Yahweh coming in John the Baptist. There's a significance here. When all four Gospels record the same event, it's time to sit up and listen. All four of them thought this was important enough to record. John is the most pivotal prophetic figure who inaugurates the beginning of the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy for the restoration of Israel. This is a fulfillment that has not yet been completed. It is still in progression today. Preparing the way for the Lord is still in fulfillment today. A few points to make on that. There is still work to be done before the glorious coming of the Lord, which requires what is pictured as the breaking down and leveling of mountains, smoothing out the potholes in a road, and filling in the deep valleys. John was the forebearer of the coming servant of Yahweh. The coming servant of Yahweh who would save his people from their sins. John was the first evangelist, but his mission didn't die with him. The Great Commission carries it forward to us. When Jesus rose from the dead and before he ascended and he gave his disciples the Great Commission in Matthew 28 to make disciples of all nations, this is what he has in mind. The forebearer of Messiah has inaugurated the redemptive plan of Yahweh in Isaiah 40. The stage has been set, and it's now the church's job to continue what John began, preparing the way for the Lord in the wilderness. As John was indeed the initiatory voice of one crying in the wilderness, Christ himself commissioned his people to continue the kingdom proclamation. We have kingdom work to do. Will you take it seriously? Do you see your fellow man fallen in sin, enslaved to his passion, without God in this world and hopeless? Do you see your fellow man wallowing in his despair? Will you go to him? Will you show him the gospel? As God's commissioned kingdom representative, will you not call to Him to repent and turn to Christ before it is too late? Beloved, we have kingdom work to do. 
Repentance and forgiveness is necessary for the preparation of a heart for the coming of the Lord. Isaiah states that after the preparation has been completed, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Look back at verse 5 with me. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now I imagine Isaiah is a little excited for this day and wished he could have seen it himself. Because remember, back in Isaiah 6, he's already seen the Lord in His glory on His throne. I'm sure as he writes it, he's thinking back to that moment that he stood in the throne room of God, completely overwhelmed with the majesty and the splendor of his God. Thinking ahead to when the glory of the Lord will shine universally and all of mankind will see it. It won't just be a scattered vision, but a universal Revelation of God's glory to all of mankind. Look over at Isaiah chapter 6 with me for a moment. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory." And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then, One of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Isaiah is longing for the day when the glory of the Lord will be a universal revelation. And he says it's coming. He says it's coming. When the kingdom work is done, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Why? How do we know this is a certainty? Look at the final line of verse 5. Because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. When God speaks... Reality comes into existence. When God promises something, it comes to pass. This is a divine reality. There is nothing that can stand in the way of the coming glory of the Lord. 
to those who are in disobedience, this is the most frightening, most frightening thing that could ever be revealed to them. Remember what Isaiah, a prophet, what his response was when standing before the unveiled glory of God. Woe is me. Woe is me. Sin cannot abide the presence of pure holiness, nor can pure holiness abide the presence of sin. There is nothing that can or will thwart the power of God's voice and the proclamation of this reality. The majesty of the Lord will be revealed. Those who are in disobedience will flee. The Psalms declare this. John in Revelation declares this. But those who are righteous, those who are faithful, those who love the Lord will not have to fear. Because they are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. This revelation of God's glory will immediately result in the recognition by all flesh that, well, all flesh is like grass. Like Isaiah in chapter 6, when he stood before the Lord and recognized his wretchedness, when the glory of the Lord is revealed on earth and all flesh sees it together, all flesh will be seen as what it is. And that's our third proclamation, the proclamation of the Lord's constancy. When faced with the reality of the glory of God, the only observation that can be uttered, the only thing the voice can bring itself to say is call out. Standing in the majesty of the Lord's glory, what can be said? And so the second voice asks that obvious question, what should I call out? Well, it's obvious. When faced with the full glory of the Lord, there is no response except to say all flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Have you ever seen a wildfire? Anyone ever been to Southern California during fire season? Got hurricane season here. They have fire season in California. Has anyone ever seen a forest burning, a field burning? Been near that? You ever started one? Don't do that. There was a fire in 2016, not far from my parents' home in Southern California. They were out of the country, and my wife and I were living... Uh, little bit further down toward the city and fire was burning north towards my parents home in 2016 but my parents were out of the country but my youngest sister was still home and so my mom getting updates um, from an unconcerned 17 year old was frantically trying to get a hold of as many people from South Africa to get a hold of me and to get a hold of people in the church that they went to to, to try and evacuate her daughter. 
the destructive firepower of that wildfire makes this illustration in Isaiah vivid. The fire overnight jumped a mountain range where one night it had been mostly contained. The next day it was 0% contained. And it was right on the verge of wiping out an entire city. Well, town. It was a gold digger town. City to me. I stood at my parents' front lawn and I could watch as the smoke billowed and the flames were beginning to creep over the top of that mountain. In that moment, when the firefighters are telling you, you need to get out of here as fast as you can because the distance it jumped last night, we cannot contain it if it crests that mountaintop. The frailty of man is just like that grass. When the breath of the Lord blows on all flesh to judge those who are in disobedience, they will be like that grass, that dried up tender. In the blink of an eye, poof, nothing but smoke. Isaiah is drawing a firm, vivid, a grand contrast between that frailty of man, his transience, and the constancy of God, His unchanging nature, the ability of His Word to go out and always come back with reward, to go out and always accomplish what it has gone out for. The Word of God stands forever. In contrast to the frailty of man stands the eternal Word of God. Though all flesh will wither and fade, the Word of God, the power of the Lord's voice will never fail, never swerve, never falter. Jesus Himself declares that not one letter of God's Word will vanish. Not one letter will fail. And the writer of Hebrews declares that the Word is a living and powerful sword. Even more, John equates the Word of God, the idea of the Word of the Lord, with the person of God Himself. And so this contrast is set. And man, when confronted by the glory of God, cannot stand against it or be compared with it. So what should man do? What must man do? Turn over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter 1, starting in verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. Verse 24. For 
All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So why is Isaiah drawing such a stark contrast? Because man is not dependable, but the word of the Lord stands forever. It is the word of the Lord that gives us our grounding, our basis for how we are to act in community with one another. It is the word of the Lord that gives us our commission. It is the word of the Lord that grounds us in the reality of who we are and what we have in Christ. And beloved, that is the most comforting truth that we can come away with. When the glory of the Lord is revealed and the transience of man is seen, when the breath of God, the very breath that gave life to Adam, wipes out sinful man, that same breath gives life to his children. Take comfort in the word of the Lord. And the fourth proclamation. The fourth proclamation is the proclamation of the Lord's control. And finally, we see that the called-for response to the glorious revelation of the Lord is to shout it out. Jesus Himself in the Gospel of Matthew commands His disciples to take what He tells them and to shout it from the housetops. The glory of the Lord is the motivation behind our declaration of the message of His coming. The glory of the Lord is our motivation for all things in life. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says that whether we eat or drink, no matter what we do, do it all for the glory of God. And in response to the transience of man, in response to the comfort from the Lord, in response to the coming of the Lord, Jerusalem is commanded to lift up her voice to lift it up without fear and declare, here is your God. This is a proclamation that should not be veiled. It's not something that should be whispered. It's not something we can hide. This is a bold, a loud proclamation that must be gotten out. Beloved, our mission is to call to repentance those who are around us in sin against a holy God. This is not a message to be timid with. In His command to His disciples to shout from the rooftops, Jesus had just finished telling them how they were going to be persecuted for declaring that message. But with it, he said, the eternal value and the weight of the message that they proclaimed would far outweigh anything that the world could ever do to them. Boldly proclaim the gospel. This is our call. This is our mission. This is the commission we have from Jesus himself. 
This is the mission that Isaiah prophesied would come to us. And this is the comfort we have from the Lord that He has chosen a people for Himself to call the world to repentance so that when He is revealed, all flesh will know this is God. The proclamation of the Lord's control also includes not just this good news of who God is, that God is, and that He is a personal God. It also declares His power. He comes with might. He is a powerful and sovereign God who drives back His enemies and rescues His people. One who brings His reward with Him. When He has conquered His enemies, the King brings the spoils to His people, and His people benefit. And look again at verse 11. Again, such a comforting and encouraging verse. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Our God is a kind and gentle shepherd. Take comfort knowing who God is. The mission He has given us is not meant to be a toil or a hardship, though it will result in that many times. It is meant to be a proclamation of what the glory of the Lord is. The Lord is seen as our shepherd the one who cares for us. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the one who laid down His life for the sheep. And He's the one who gathers His sheep. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Beloved, as we are saturated with the comfort of that is ours in Christ Jesus. As we come to the table this morning and we partake in remembrance of the sacrifice He made for us, remember the comfort that we have in Him. Remember the coming promise that He will return and He will return in His full glory. Let this be a call to examine our own hearts. Are we right with the Lord? Is there sin hidden in your life? Do you know the Lord? Or are you living in rebellion and hostility against Him? This week, 
I would encourage you, meditate on, on the remaining verses of Isaiah 40 to see who God is. There is nothing comparable to Him. The fulfillment of the glory of the Lord is seen in Christ. Take comfort in the Messiah. Take comfort knowing that He has provided the sacrifice for sins. And beloved, if you don't know the Lord, repent. Turn to Him for salvation. There is no comfort and no, no care outside of Him that is worth anything. Father, we praise You for all You have given to us. We praise You especially for the comfort that You've given us in Your Son. The comfort that You've given us in the removal of iniquity. Father, as we go forward and as we remember now Your, your Son's sacrifice, I pray we would be burdened for the lost. I pray that we would examine our own hearts before You. Lord, strengthen this body of believers to be a light on a hill in this community. May their example of love for one another draw many to You, but may they be bold and the proclamation of Your Word. Thank You, Father, for the fellowship we have together because of Your Son. It's in Your name I pray.